All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Thank you, Arizona. Thank you. Thank you, Arizona. I had a great time. I went out there with uh, Lara Bites. We did Tucson on Friday. We did Phoenix on Saturday. And it was uh, it was great. It was a great time. It's good to be out in the desert. There's something about the Arizona desert. That's the one. The Arizona desert is the desert. That's where those sequoia, saroya, what are they called? Those, uh, those uh, specific cacti, the classic old westy looking cacti happen only in Arizona or unless people drag them illegally out of Arizona to plant in their yards. They only happen there and there's hundreds of them. And they just, uh, they, they have a very unique look uh, as they ride up the bottom of a hill up towards the, uh, the edge of these uh, mountains in Arizona. And they're, they're stunning. There's nothing else that looks like it. And the air was clear and the drive was clean, man. How you doing? Everybody okay? Is everyone all right out there? I hadn't been out there in a long time. I could not remember the last time I'd been out in Arizona. I will tell you this, today on the show, uh, Adrian Ballou is here. Adrian Blue is the guitar player. He's singular, a singular sounding guitar player that not everyone is familiar with, but he's the shit. He's amazing. He's otherworldly, almost an alien. Nobody does it like Adrian Blue. Yeah, I mean, I talk to him about as much as I know about. See, I'm not a huge Crimson guy, but I knew enough about a couple of the Adrian Blue records, just barely enough, not to appease the full Crimson nerds, but certainly to give some context. We talked about King Crimson. We talked about Zappa going way back. We talked about Bowie, Talking Heads, Laurie Anderson, Nine Inch Nails, his solo career. I'm a lone rhinoceros. Got a lot of albums out, this guy. Worked with a lot of great people. We were really able to sort of chart the evolution of his sound and who he is as a musician through his history with these amazing geniuses it was quite a conversation and uh he was out earlier this year on his own and now he's going to be performing with jerry harrison from talking heads here in la next week they're going to do a stuff from the remain in light album which adrian is on and sort of defined the sound of yeah i'll be so bold but i was first hipped to adrian blue by a guy i knew back in the day when i was in high school working at the posh bagel across from Yale Park, across from University of New Mexico. 15, 16 years old. There was a record store. This story uh, spreads its wings a lot. There was a record store next door called Budget. Budget Tapes and Records, owned by a, uh, uh, a couple, a biracial couple, that enjoyed the club music, the disco music. Didn't like playing anything in the store but R&B and the disco music back in the 80s, 70s, actually. And there was a couple of guys that worked there that kind of changed the way I saw music in general, informed me, educated me. A few things happened. They gave me a box of records, promo records that they didn't use. It had Elvis Costello's first record in there, George Thorogood and the Destroyers. It had uh, Tom Waits, Nighthawks at the Diner. That box in and of itself kind of laid down the track, laid down, wired me up, you know, plugged in some stuff. And then there's one dude, what the hell was his name with the big mustache? who uh, once took me to his house in an innocent way 
And we made a mixtape of all his R&B records, the old stuff, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Etta James, I think, was on there. Uh, uh, what was Solomon Burke? I mean, it was just all of the stuff, the old soul business. What the hell was his name? Why can't I remember? Jim. I think it was Jim. More importantly, Steve LaRue, Steve Lash LaRue, who was in the great uh, performance art outfit called Jungle Red, who performed once a year in surgical uh, surgical scrubs. But uh, Steve was a guy to hit me to the stuff, man. Brian Eno, The Residents, Fred Frith, uh, John Hassel, uh, you know, the Bowie stuff, the... The uh, I think he was the guy who uh, who first turned me on to Adrian Ballou. If it weren't for Lash LaRue, Steve LaRue, I wouldn't know about Adrian Ballou and I wouldn't know a lot about his stuff. That budget tapes and records next to the Posh Bagel around the corner, around the corner from the general store head shop on Harvard Street, across from University of New Mexico, completely uh, blew my mind and arranged it back correctly around uh, certain music. Now, Steve was a musician himself and sadly committed suicide a few years ago. And it's one of those situations where a mutual friend, Clemmer, David Clemmer, from, uh, he kind of pulled together a bunch of stuff he sent me on CD that I still have to go through of this guy who was kind of a mad oddball genius in his own right. I'd fallen way out of touch with him for a long time and I just heard about his passing and uh, Clemmer's got all this stuff and I got to go through it. But what happens to that stuff? What happens to the unsung wizards of the uh, oddball realm, the musical astronauts who uh, couldn't quite cut it and couldn't quite hack it ultimately for whatever reason? Rest in peace, Lash LaRue. Thank you for turning me on to Adrian Ballou. And that's that backstory. So I was very excited to talk to Adrian Ballou because... Uh, Man, he makes that guitar sound like nothing else. So my uh, slightly dementiaed father came out to Phoenix to hang out with me, and I was nervous. I didn't know if he would recognize me. I didn't know if we had crossed the line, and he certainly did recognize me, and he was quite happy to see me. We were quite happy to see each other. I tell you, man, we've all done bad shit in our life. We've all made mistakes. We have problems with people we love. But I, I, you know, seeing my father over these last few years as he enters this this uh, end run with this problem, this dementia, has been pretty great and pretty, uh, I'm finding a lot of peace around us, around him, around me, around whatever I, I remembered him, however I thought he wronged me or however, whatever, man. It just doesn't matter. It's certainly drifting out of his head. That's the, the gift of it. If there's any way to look at it in a positive way, it's they don't remember. There's no going back to that. So you, you let go and you accept and you, you kind of you take what you can. Enjoy those moments, man. But like he was pretty present. He turns on the juice and his brain works a little better when he's around me, his wife said. And I talked to him, got him going about some stuff in the old days. I showed him some x-rays, some pictures I had on my phone, and my mom's got a little issue in her neck, and that used to be a place where he used to do the surgery on. He was orthopedic. I showed him the x-rays and asked what he thought about the problem, and he was uh, he locked right in, man. He 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 did the doctor thing for a few minutes. It's, it's all sort of still in there, and I'm just saying, man, you know, 
Forgive the people you love. Forgive yourself. Find some peace. Can you? Can you do it? Look, I, you know, whatever my issues were with my parents, they're all fading as they fade. And I'm happy to be as present as I can be for where they're at right now. It's a gift. And I did that show in Phoenix to a packed house. And I did those jokes about my dad and his condition with his wife there and her, bro- her, uh, it was her brother was there and his wife, I think, and uh, their niece and my old man. And I, I pointed it, I did that. I made fun of my dad in a relatively good-hearted way. And I thanked Rosie, his wife, for taking care of him. And I introduced them to the audience. And it was kind of beautiful. They, they had the best time. She was just so grateful and had so many laughs. She loves when I make fun of them. The last time they saw me, she said, I didn't do it enough, so I went out of my way. I just punched away at the old man. He loved it, and I'm sure he doesn't remember any of it today, but she will, and she's the one at the front. She's at the front of his battle. So very grateful for her, and uh, it it was a powerful night, man. So look, you guys, I talked to Jerry Harrison was a few weeks ago uh, of the Talking Heads, of Talking Heads, not the, I was corrected on that. We talked about uh, Adrian Ballou and, uh, and then here he is, Adrian came. He and Jerry are performing songs from Talking Heads Remain in Light next week at the Wiltern Theater in LA. You can get tickets at thewiltern.net. And this is me covering the ground with Adrian Ballou. from northern kentucky i was born in covington right across the river ohio river from cincinnati really because it's weird like i've listened to stuff you've played on my whole life right here and there and i always knew your name i remember there was a guy i knew who worked at a record store in albuquerque new mexico or uh, you know next door to where i worked in high school at a restaurant so he turned me on to uh i think it was it must have been lone rhinoceros right when did that come out that's 82 the first solo record well, my year after I I did the Discipline record with uh, King King Crimson, yeah, and and I think he gave me that record. It might have been I don't it might have been after it might not have been him, but there was a whole world of music that you were involved with that was like I thought you were from outer space. I didn't think you would. I didn't know. I, I didn't, well, I did I didn't, grow up on the planet Mars, but it's a little small colony <laughs> that we had there. Yeah, just the guitar colony, yeah, the, guitar, the, yeah. the, the 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 colony with the amps on Mars. <laughs> the, but that's amp. Yeah, amp Mars. But like, I just never assumed that you were uh, of a uh, of human upbringing. Yeah, well, maybe uh, there's something <laughs> to be said there. I've been watching a lot of ancient aliens. Maybe I yeah, maybe you did land. <laughs> Kentucky itself is a little alien. Well, what kind of uh, what? Uh, what year were you, uh, like, you know, what did, was there music in the house? No, no, no one in my house, no one in my family had any musical background ever anywhere. Um, I my know father's side of my that. family were kind of, uh, you know, uh, country people. Yeah? Minor Kentucky area. How'd you get rid of your accent? And uh, traveling the world all my life. And my mother was a school teacher. I mean, a Sunday school teacher. Really? Yeah, and home, you know, homemaker. Yeah. And there was nobody there. Brothers, sisters, anything. Two brothers younger than me. Neither of them played anything or had any interest. So yeah. It just hit me when I was about ten years old. I said, I want to be. I want to play drums. 
Drums, it was drums. Yeah, drums. Yeah. And uh, we had just moved to a new part of Kentucky, Ludlow, Kentucky, a little further down the river. Yeah. A, a river town. Yeah. And they said, yeah, okay, well, we'll have you in the uh, junior high school Ludlow Marching Panthers. Yeah. But you have to play trumpet. Did and you I, learn how to read music then? No, I didn't. No, I just learned how to do marching cadences. And I said, no, I don't want to play trumpet. <laughs> I want to play, I want to be in the drum yeah. line yeah I didn't even that's know so what it funny was called. That, that, that despite your desire to play an instrument they're like well we need a trumpet yeah so like you're right. not going to be anything yeah just yeah. play the trumpet yeah we don't want you in the band unless you'll play trumpet <laughs> but i you know i threw a proper fit and you know they put me on drums yeah. and for three years i did that then we moved 10 miles away to florence Kentucky. away from the river yeah so everything was gone. I had no friends. I had I wasn't in the band anymore. And at that time, the Beatles had come out. And when I moved to Florence, Kentucky, before I went to freshman year, yeah, I was uh, I was just in a neighborhood. My new neighborhood didn't know anybody, but there happened to be a lot of musicians there. And we started sort of hanging out. Really? And pretty soon they said, "Well, you you got to hear this band called the Denims. They do all the Beatles stuff really great." So I went to They're see local the Denims. Band? Local band. The Are you Denims. how old now? I'm 72. No, I mean, how old were you then? So I was 15. When the Beatles happened, you were about 14. 15, 14 I, or 15? Yeah. I was 14, 13, 14, but by did, the time I got to Florence, I was maybe 14 or 15. Did it blow your mind Like when the Beatles came out? Was oh, that the thing? incredible. Are you really? kidding? I yeah. went upstairs, and I actually had enough hair to cut it into bangs. You did? I yeah. went right straight to the bathroom, cut my hair into See, bangs. But, but you don't have recollection of like Elvis or any of that generation? Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah, my mother had a um, a little radio that was built into the head the headboard of her, yeah. her her bed yeah. in their apartment, and I remember hearing "You ain't nothing but a hound" mm-hmm. and running in the bedroom and jumping up and down like a crazed little child at age five. On, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, to Elvis, it know. did it. But Elvis, and, and there were a lot of other people in between Elvis and the Beatles that I loved: Roy Orbison, sure, uh, the Everly Brothers, the, yeah, the Beach harmonies. Boys, yeah. the Ventures, you know. But mm. then it was the That's Beatles. That's so funny, because all of those, that through line, there's a through line to everyone you just yeah. said. Like, you didn't go to Jerry Lee Lewis no. or, you know, Little Richard. You do, Love those you know, guys, too. But there's this haunting harmony trip that yeah. goes through the oh, ventures yeah. Absolutely. and Orbison. It was harmony for me, because, see, even when I was five, I could sing along with those kind yeah. of records and even sing the weirder harmony. So yeah. I would sing for my aunts and uncles and stuff, and they'd say, oh, he's so cute you know and i thought well this is what you want to do for sure. a living right yeah i th- that's funny the ventures did you did you ever do a surf record i've written three surf songs of my own now i'm going to do the third one on my next record okay but I and, I, to make and sure. I was friends i am friends with the ventures well the remaining ventures have just recently Who passed. Just passed yeah uh, uh Don, yeah, Don, Don yeah, Wilson, yeah. and and I was friends with Noki Edwards yeah. as well. I love those guys. Yeah. You know, they were really old school guys, and I would see them. At, you know, I'd go to some of their shows and hang out with them, and they accepted me. They loved me. They what, they what, were like, we don't know what the hell you're doing, Adrian, but we sure do love it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were they playing like state fairs and stuff? Uh, when I saw them, it was usually at the NAM shows. I used to go all oh, the NAM shows yeah, out here in Anaheim yeah, every yeah, year, yeah. and they would almost always be playing somewhere. But I saw them other places too in fact uh my trio opened for them in a festival somewhere oh really yeah now, who was, so uh, they finally got to hear me and they were scratching was that heads. dick dale or he's no, different dick dale, he's he different was, he was another guy he was, he was like a the surf king he surf was on guy. his own right yeah. but the ventures really were important to i wasn't even a guitar player yeah. when i heard the ventures yeah. and i wasn't even when i heard the beatles of yeah. course yeah when i was 16 
I got mononucleosis, couldn't play in the denims, couldn't play drums anymore in oh, the Oh, wait, band. so you saw the denims and then you tried to get in the denims? I, or yeah, they, they asked, asked me to join them. To be a drummer? Uh, singing drummer, yeah. I sang, I could sing any part, you know. And I they could, were primarily... I could mimic a, uh, Paul's voice or John's or George or even Ringo's. So, oh, really? You, yes. They were a cover band primarily? They were, but, you know, they got so popular in the northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area that yeah. there was a popular DJ, his name was... Dusty Rhodes on WSAI radio, and he coined the phrase Cincinnati's own Beatles. So we were Cincinnati's <laughs> own Beatles. We had the little, we had eventually had the military suits so you and did the play super with them. beetle amps. Yeah, I played with them for three or four years. Really? Yeah. All through high school? Yeah, 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 exactly. Until Drums. a little out of high school. Yes, and when I was 16, I couldn't play with them for two months. I had to stay at home with mononucleosis. Yeah. While I was there, I had all these songs in my head. Of your, could, your own making? My own making, and I could hear them like it's a record playing. So I said, can I borrow a guitar? Borrowed a guitar, the father's uh, guitar from one of the guitar players. In the denims. In the denims. Yeah. And I sat at home for two months and taught myself to play. I didn't have anybody show me anything. I just figured it out by, okay, I want this note. Where's my finger go for that note? I want a harmony. Where, where, what finger can go there? You didn't have so a chord chart? Pains taking nothing. Very painstaking process, but when I came back, you know... So you had to invent guitar. I, I invented my own chords, for sure. And when I came back, you know, I had five of my songs written and played them for the denims, and they said, what the hell are those chords? Really? You know? Yeah, because they were like my own chord shapes, and I said, I don't know, you know, A, a furnished flat, I don't know. <laughs> and they still don't match demolished. up with chords? <laughs> I, did, I still didn't know chords did they play years the songs? after that. Uh, yes, we did learn one of them. Yeah. Just one. What yeah. about the other? Yeah, you still well, waiting we, to record we, those we, other ones? We never, we never got to really record and stuff. We didn't get that far down the pike. So how did the uh, how did your tenure at the de with the Denims end? Um, I think something else in the band happened. Someone else left, and we uh -oh. we decided to call it quits. But it was at the time that in 1967. And I was graduating from high school. It was at the time that uh, Sergeant Pepper had come out, uh, and we Beatles, could no longer we could no longer imitate the Beatles. I mean, oh. it was just that simple. We said, "What are we going to do, Sonic boys? Problem. Hey, lads, what are we going to do? We can't sound like the Beatles anymore." Oh, because it was it, it was out of that sort of basic. Yeah, it, it, almost you know, uh, old well, we style actually, rock and We roll. did try to play, uh, you know. I read the news today, oh, oh boy. But where's the orchestra? Where's, you know, this sure. shit? You, you, when you get to the big part where the orchestra swells, it's the two guitar players going ning, 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 yeah, ning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just didn't work. You can't do it. Nah. And you can't do it. Well, you, you, like the the amount of production, that all the, so, the, all the sounds that they made with that record, how are you going to do that? Well, the one preceding is my favorite, which is Revolver, and I remember bringing that we were playing at a Catholic church gig, and I remember bringing the record to the other guys in the denim. Go look here it is, yeah, yeah, here yeah, it is. Yeah, I just yeah, gotten yeah. it. Yeah, and we were just marveling over the cover and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, as we learned some of those songs, we realized, wow, some of this stuff we're not going to be able to do because, yeah. like, you can't do uh, "Love You Too," the you know the Indian song. You sure. can't really do uh, without a sitar. You know, you uh, yeah, yeah, and with all the other other yeah. accoutrements or uh, you know, but turn off your mind, relax. And vote yeah, downstream. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. Tomorrow never knows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there but was, you must have, that must have blown your. You, were you playing guitar full time there, or yet? Yeah, at just that point, doing, I was writing songs. But like that, the the sort of strange sounds in the backward looping. Oh, and, oh my god! And, and just some of the leads on that record must have informed your brain somehow. Totally, I mean, that totally because that was the first time I think I 
that's weird guitar playing. It is. In fact, I remember also in the church parking lot, (laughs) Serenji, we played a lot of churches at that point, I guess, uh, hearing on the radio, sitting in someone's car, I didn't have a car, and hearing, I'm only sleeping. Yeah. That's the first backwards guitar part right, I ever right, heard. Right, right, which right. Which actually- But you didn't know it was backwards, right? I had no idea what it was, but I knew it must be a guitar. it seems like and, you figured out how to play that forwards. And I totally, <laughs> well, not at that point. I yeah. wasn't that good. Yeah. But um, I totally flipped out over that sound. Right. Backwards guitar is still something I, I use a lot, and now I can play I can hear it, it live while I'm playing. I can actually play live and make it sound, May, and play, make it play backwards. With some of the toys you can Yeah, with it. a digital delay. And it's it's a technique. It's hard to do because you have to be always a playing ahead of where you want it, what you want to be, because it has to record it first and right. then play oh, it backwards. Oh, so, so it's it, about a two second delay. <laughs> oh, so it actually has to play backwards. Yeah, yeah. You can't mock the sound. I, of I have backwards. a pedal, so I'm playing this pedal, and when I finally push it down, it engages whatever I've been playing, turns it around backwards, and there, poof, voila! So you got to, so you got to play it ahead really of hard. it yeah. to match it. Two seconds ahead of it. What you want to do? <laughs> so uh, you told you from another planet. I am, but you're pretty. <laughs> but the the but it's well. That's sort of incredible because you're doing that in a live environment, and so your your engagement. I mean, you got to have a lot of confidence in your rhythm section and everything else to to yeah to, yeah to stay uh, on that. When well, did so you... I, I make a lot of loops when I'm playing with my own trio, and that's another thing you have to that has to be perfectly right on. So you're going to step on this thing, boom, right there, and then you're going to step on it again to end it, boom, right there, and it's got to be a perfect loop. Right. Otherwise, you have to undo it and start all over again, which is highly embarrassing. Do you have a practice regimen now? Not at all. I just play a lot. (laughs) I never have actually had a practice regimen. Even when I was in uh, King Crimson and we had all that stuff, I would just, you know... That was Crimson in a nutshell. Once Robert and I finished our four hours of practice every day, I'd, you know, I'd... I'd slough off, you know, and like, you know, okay, I'll catch up tomorrow on that. <laughs> <laughs> but where does it like, so how, where do you sort of begin to sort of, you know, bend the possibilities? So you go from the denims to what? Uh, I got in a, eventually I got in a band. Uh, in Kentucky. Guitar, as a guitar player. In yeah. Kentucky. Well, it was a Cincinnati band, in fact. Uh, okay. From Cincy. part of Cincinnati. But not the Cincinnati Beatles. And or not the, they were, they were gone by then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I started, you know. Well, around that time... What was that band? What were they called? The first one was called Gory Oatley. Yeah. Isn't that, how's that for a name, huh? And this is what, 69? Uh, probably 68 or 69, yeah. yes. And Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton had arrived on the scene. Yeah. And so at that point, I was saying, gee, I want to do that stuff, not just be a guitar player. So I was learning, oh, Foxy Lady. Right, right. Just by ear. Yeah. And I, I played the, the record and just figured it all out. And I figured like, out everything Hendrix did as well as I could. And, and also Jeff. I loved his playing a lot. Well, I mean, Hendrix so was lyrical. trying to, you know, uh, uh, Billy Gibbons yeah. tells a story about uh, opening for Hendrix in Texas. <laughs> and Hendrix had a full stereo console set up in his hotel room. And uh, he basically said to uh, Billy, he said, let's go try to figure out what Jeff Beck is doing. <laughs> and that was Hendrix. <laughs> So Hendrix was I've got to tell Jeff that one. He probably already knows it. It was baffled by Beck. Oh, my God. Beck was such a lyrically beautiful guitar. Still is. He's yeah. my buddy and my favorite now. Really? I mean, well, you know, Jimi Hendrix 
did something no one else will ever accomplish. He opened all those doors, and he was unique unto himself. At the same time, however, I always felt, well, Jeff Beck was doing some great stuff, too, and Jeff yeah. has been there since. So well, if yeah, you look at his entire career, Jeff has done more than Jimmy has by now. Well, right, but you also, like, the sensibility around uh, uh, electronics was different. Yeah. You know, like, it, it felt like, you know, despite whatever Hendrix did, he was still, you know, in some sort of loop with those amps and still in the blues in a way. Yeah. But it seemed like his pedal game, was, and people know this, I'm not that deep a nerd, was was minimal. It was, right? yeah. And, but Beck, would, like, right, even on that, like, on the, uh, the, the, on I Ain't Superstitious with Jeff Beck group. Yeah. Like that sound was something, you know, was beyond anything that anyone could Unbelievable, recognize. Unbelievable, really. It was a wah-wah with some wonderful room delay on it. And, Is that what it was? Uh-huh. And he just was so great with it, though. It's I a mean, brain changer, that, yeah. that, 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 that was the beginning. He always right? did. I mean, right from the beginning, uh, for me, when I was still in the denims and listened, and wasn't playing guitar, uh, the Yardbirds, Yardbirds had a, yeah. they had a, on one of the Yardbirds hits, they had a flip side which turns out to be an old Les Paul track yeah. renamed Jeff's Boogie. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, that track right there, from there on, I was like, I love this guy named Jeff Beck, whoever that guy is, you know, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, and, and then he I'm did the... with him. <laughs> you are? You guys yeah. pretty good buddies? Well, we see each other whenever I can. Well, there must be, like, there, at some point, you've, you know, you... Uh, as a guitar player, are are in that ether, well, uh, I believe. One time I was in London in a little club. This was back in the day of early King Crimson. Yeah. Um, and I was standing on a balcony, and I was looking down at the band. I don't know what band it was. I just wanted something to do in a night out. And across the way on the balcony, I saw Jeff Beck. Yeah. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we both sort of started walking to the corner. We met at the corner, and he goes, hey, you're that elephant guy. And I said, hey, you're Jeff Beck. <laughs> and we just kind of hugged and said, yeah, it's great. <laughs> he, he knew. He was on it. Plus, when I did um, later, many years later, my favorite compliment happened, which was with Jeff also. Which Elephant uh, was in referral to? Well, he had, he had seen the video of uh, Elephant Talk, I oh, think, okay. so he, he knew I was the guy that yeah, made yeah. that elephant stuff, sound stuff. <laughs> yeah. But years later, I was we were playing, I think, at uh, Royal Albert Hall, once again, King Crimson. With Crimson. And the end of the show, uh, I did um, Three of a Perfect Pair by myself as the first encore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. guitar and voice. Yeah. And he just fell out over that. He couldn't believe I could play that and sing that at the same time. So I went backstage, and there he was in the green room, and he came up, and I reached my hand out to shake his hand. Yeah. He reached my hand out with his, and with his other hand, he made this motion that he was sawing my hand off. <laughs> and he said, you bastard. <laughs> Look at that. The competition remains. It's the, funny. It the, is a because when you're an astronaut... You know, and you've already sort of mastered space, right? <laughs> you, you're kind of like, you know, who are the other guys out here? You yeah. know, and you're the other guy out there. Yeah. So well, going, I, you know, I still have I have a problem even believing any of that or thinking about myself in that way. I just, you know, it's you just it's, play. You don't feel hard competitive. to equate yourself to someone that you right grew you know, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah love it. Mean, but I don't get in awe of any of these guys. You know, I spent an hour as you have mm. with Paul McCartney, and I just loved it. I loved every minute. Sure. Was enjoyed every second. Yeah, of it. he was so wonderful. Yeah, but I wasn't sitting around like, oh my God, it's Paul McCartney. I should have. Yeah, 
because he has also meant an extraordinary amount. Well, I mean, to you me can do life. that. I mean, I have I have fanboyed with certain people. Yeah, uh, like with with Keith Richards. You know, I did. Yeah, and uh, but you know, but then the second time I interviewed him, I was kind of busting his balls. Once yeah. they become humans to you, and they do quickly, very quickly. That's the thing when pe- when you meet these people or you work with them. You know, I meet David Bowie, and, and before I know it, me and David Bowie are joking about stuff, and sure. he's no longer really that David Bowie. He's a different guy to me. Well, I keep trying to, like, and I, I think about it with you, and I think about it when I talk to any musician, the, the sort of magic of the ability to sort of take a stage in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people and do that job and, 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 and put on the show is kind of fucking amazing. It is. And, it really and, is. and like, I can't, I can't. I, it, it's still a mystery to me. Like even talking to you, you know, knowing that you were like on the Remain in Light tour and, and, and on all those Bowie, I don't know how many tours he did with him, all the Crimson stuff. Two Bowie tours. But you know, you're here, but you know, do you feel a shift when you, like is that zone a, a, oh, a magic? Oh yeah, it's, it's strange. It, it's something overtakes me. I can even be really sick. Yeah. And I can walk on stage and I'm just, I'm no longer sick. I'm so completely zoned in. And uh, there's an energy force, I honestly feel. It's not like a a mysterious thing. But from the audience that just completely, all of your adrenaline just goes sky high. And you're in the moment and you're playing. And a lot of gigs I play, it's over almost in a flash sometimes. Really? You go, wow, that, that... I just barely started and that's done. Yeah. Because you're so in the moment. So like okay, so you lock into Beck, you lock I don't see I don't hear a lot of Clapton in you. No, but I learned a lot of his stuff because I did love the riffs. I loved Cream. Oh, oh yeah? Yeah, and I loved, you know, a lot of his stuff. Sure. Jimmy Page too. Well yeah. lesser. Jimmy Page was a little later, Led Zeppelin and I but, but then I really was a... I was kind of on my own. Doing but you stuff. you don't strike me as a blues guy. I did learn a little blues when I was teaching myself. I but you didn't myself love it, to right? Well, I figured to me that blues is kind of a great way to learn how to play soloing and stuff yeah. and, and, and show off. <laughs> right. Did you ever listen to Peter Green stuff? From, I did. Yeah. I love that song, Oh Well, Part 2. Love that song. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had my little phase sure. of blues. I was listening to John Mayall and, and you know. Right. The, so it was specifically sort of like, I got to pick up a guitar at a party. Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> got to be able to do that. Yeah, you got to be able to do that. You know, I learned... I learned uh, how to pick by finger pick like Chet Atkins. I learned a, Come on. I did. I learned a few uh, How did you do that? I just taught myself. Doom, 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 doom. You didn't He's read great. nothing. You didn't you just like, I don't read anything. I'm I mean in terms of music. No, but you didn't read anything about how he did it like the Travis picking I, you just kind of figured no, it out. No, I figured it out from records. Yeah. Everything I learned when I started, come I figured it out from records. Or did you like? I seem to be pretty good at it. Okay, so you just. I, I had mean, I've had a, I had a really good detailed way of doing it, and I would figure out like Beatles. But the Beatles were my biggest teachers, and I figured out every part. Yeah. Bass parts, drum parts, guitar parts. I'd listen to the production. But would you to spend the, hours? Oh, my whole life <laughs> was spent <laughs> in my parents' basement. I, at the end of school year, you know, when everybody else had had a tan from playing baseball, yeah. I'd be the pale guy that went yeah. back and still trying to figure out the next guitar riff. <laughs> and what was that guitar, that, that first one that you had there? The first one I had was a Gibson Firebird, because I thought it was a pretty interesting looking guitar. Great guitar, right? Big, yeah. big, big. Big and unusual, really. Yeah. Yeah. 
something. They're still kind of unusual. But, uh, you know, eventually over time, I was working with my friend Seymour Duncan, who became, you know... You know that guy? Uh, very well. We, For, back, you, back then, we knew each other. In Kentucky? Well, he lived in Cincinnati area, and he was a very good guitar player at that yeah, time, too, by sure. the way. Anyway, long story short, I kept su- talking to Seymour about yeah. changing the sound of the Firebird I had, and eventually said, you know you know what you really want here? You want a Stratocaster. You keep getting me to put strats and tell you know, Oh, because the Firebird had those mini humbuckers, uh, right? I didn't like the sound of the guitar. I just yeah. loved the look of it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so eventually I got a Stratocaster. Oh, like in the, uh, like in the late 60s? Right. Uh, around the time I joined um, Frank's band. So, okay, so you're in Cincinnati, Kentucky area. You're playing with Gory whatever. Yeah, Gory Oatley. Did you record? That was only for a year, by the way. Well, so how do you just, like, how how does Frank find you? Well, I went through a lot of things over the next 10 or 12 years. Cover bands, Elvis cover band, every kind of band, Holiday Inn lounge band where I went Until back you're to almost playing 30? Drum. Until I was 27 years old and so, I'm sitting there really thinking, oh my gosh, Holiday I, missed, I missed the bus. Because everyone is supposed to be famous by then or not. And you're doing a hotel lounge gig? I was in a, a Holiday Inn lounge band for two and a half years. It was called Sound Assembly, two guitar players and me on drums. We didn't even have a bass player, but we were called Sound Assembly. Were you miserable? I was miserable five hours a night. Yeah. But then I had the rest of the day for a month at a time sitting <laughs> in a hotel room and a Holiday Inn to, to hone my art. And, and teach. I turned to, taught myself to play cello. Uh, I played drums every night. I taught myself to play flute. I wrote yeah. a lot of songs with acoustic guitar. I sold my firebird to get a drum kit to play that that gig because there were no shows for me anymore this was in the disco era wow and you know all the gigs had kind of dried up so there was nothing so i thought well i better keep going with my writing at least and um so then what happened my manager i had a manager and he called me in In kentucky you know in cincinnati ohio stan hertzman was his name and stan couldn't do much for me because there wasn't much going on right and i was you know and you know light years away from having a record deal of my own or anything but he said there's a band in nashville called sweetheart yeah and they need a new guitar player strangely the guitar player from gory oatley had left sweetheart (laughs) (laughs) small world (laughs) full circle and so I went down to Nashville, joined Sweetheart, played in that band for oh, about three years, one night. Three years? Yeah, one night. And then I was 27, and one night we were playing in a dank, dark bar called Fanny's. It was a biker bar. It was actually painted flat black inside, full of bikers. Not a great place. but And I looked the hallway. You could see who was coming in. And there's Frank Zappa with his crew of people, his big bodyguard, John Smothers, and Terry Bozio, the drummer, and a whole horde of people who look like Frank Zappa guys. Yeah. Came in, he listened 40 minutes. Just by coincidence, or he'd heard about you? He'd heard about me from the uh, chauffeur. He had a, he played a show that night. In Nashville. And he had a chauffeur taking him around, and he said, we want to go see a great rock band. Who's, who do you recommend? The, yeah. The chauffeur said, this band. He took him to see Sweetheart. So Frank walks in, he sits there for 40 minutes, and you know I remember all of a sudden he gets up, he walks up to the stage, reaches up to me, I'm playing Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, <laughs> shakes my hand and says, I'll get your name and number from the chauffeur, and when I'm done touring, I'm going to call you and audition you. And eventually that is what happened, although it was about six months later, and I, by then I thought, well, 
that was just that was just a dream and then you flew out to la <laughs> yeah my first time flying ever yeah <laughs> <laughs> and what guitar did you have the strat i had a very simple natural wood strat which made it through the first two months of touring with with uh frank and then we took two weeks off before we went to europe and that guitar never arrived back at, in nashville oh you lost it so i lost it. it or it was stolen. so all right so you fly out here you audition for frank over in yeah. laurel canyon at the house absolutely yeah in the basement and how how and this is for this is what year we're talking 77 77 mm -hmm. so frank is deep in frank He's very frank. I'll yeah. be frank about it. Yeah, <laughs> and he that house get more frank than that. So you go down in the basement. Yeah, and uh, and what what is he? What do you got to do for Frank? What what's the setup? Okay, so his basement was not yet the gorgeous studio it would become years later. It was a linoleum floor, and it was full of different activity uh -huh. people moving around you know pianos yeah. and things it was very distracting it was the original basement yeah. and then he yeah. built that right. whole other world. oh yeah every yeah, year yeah. i would go back and see him whenever i was in la it always yeah. goes back and he would always say welcome welcome to my construction project yeah and it was always being but this time it was very simple but there was a lot of people doing things there and there was a little console. He was sitting behind the console, kind of like we are here. Yeah. And I'm standing in the middle of the room with a little pig nose amp and my Strat. <laughs> pig nose. Yeah, a little tiny pig nose amp. <laughs> I mean, that's real little for people who aren't yeah. guitar people. We're yeah. talking at cigar box size. Yeah. And it, it can't sound like it's, much of it, anything. Did you have batteries in it? Yeah. It, it ran on <laughs> batteries. That That's what I could afford, Come ladies on. and gentlemen. Come on. And Frank would say, okay, play, uh, you know, he'd take a puff off a cigar and yeah. go, okay, Adrian, play uh, Andy. And I'd play, start playing for about two minutes or whatever, and he'd stop me. Okay, all right. Yeah. And then he'd start on the next one. He'd give me 12 songs to learn. And when I talked to him on the phone, when he called me, he said, you do read music. I said, uh, no, I don't. I'm totally autodidact, self-taught. Yeah. And he said, well, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. I never do this, but yeah. I'm going to give you a shot anyway. I like the way you were singing and playing, so yeah. let's see what works. Yeah. So I go there, and we go through this uh, 12 songs in no time. They're all, and they're, they're all Zappa songs? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And and we're from different records. I had to borrow the records from friends of mine. Long story short is I failed miserably, but they so I was so distracted. Really? I had nowhere to go, so I stayed around and watched other people do well, how'd it. How'd you fail? What do you mean? He didn't want you to be well, in the band? No. No, I, I just knew that I just didn't do well. I was too nervous and there was too many distractions. I thought he said he was going to give you a shot. He did give me. That was my shot. So I was standing around there because they said, okay, you, you're just going to stay here till 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock. Then we're going to take you back to the airport, ship you back home to Nashville. So I had nowhere to go. And I watched some other auditions where hair-raising auditions, you know, keyboard players. And I watched a, 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 a percussion audition. Yeah. And then... All of a sudden, at the end of the day, that was just me and Frank standing there next to each other all of a sudden. And I looked up and said, Frank, I'm really sorry. I, I, I know I didn't do well in the audition, but I, I thought it would be different. And he said, how so? And I said, well, I thought it would be just you and me quietly, and I could just show you that I can do this. And he said, well, great. Let's go upstairs. So we went upstairs. I took my pig nose. <laughs> I turned it as far up, all the way up, pushed it down into the the uh cushions between his on his purple couch yeah we sat there we did it again the and we started again and about a third of the way through he started singing along with me and i knew okay this yeah. is going well and then he stopped and put his hand out this is 
typically frank shook his hand okay you got the gig here's how much i pay for this here's what we do if we do this here's if we don't work we get this retainer and so on explain the whole thing to me and it was done and you did like four albums i'm on i think eight or nine records because they they keep finding things oh, in the vault right but the record i did was chic your booty the and, disco record yeah and mm. chic your booty is not many people know this out of all of his records it's the it's the biggest selling one so because it had that two hit million on there. copies <laughs> what was that uh what was uh, the uh there was bobby a hit Brown? on there maybe uh, bobby uh baby snakes i don't know it was one of those things oh wow yeah there's a there was there was a bunch of really interesting good songs on there were you a fan of his before i only wasn't knew, a dancing fool isn't that what dancing I'm, fool is on there yes that's it that was a, hit. a dancing fool. yes exactly that's the one yeah i knew some of frank's work but not a lot when i was actually when i was going back to the denims when i was 16 uh a, the manager we had in the denims we yeah. always you always have a manager and this guy came in one day and said, here, Adrian, I want to give you this record. Uh, and he, he said, you're the only person I know who might really appreciate this. And it was Freak Out. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's early. And so that's before... That was the first, first double album ever made. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And when I was... With, later on, I would stay at his house most weekends so I could learn... Uh, when you were touring the, with him? The, no, when we were still rehearsing. Yeah. We rehearsed for three three months. So I could learn the parts ahead of time when everyone on Monday would get, you know, sheet music. Did you find him difficult to work with? I found Frank to be perfect for me. Yeah. He was very demanding, but he was also, for me, very generous, friendly. We well, didn't read music, so he yeah. had to show you what he wanted. Yeah. So I hung out with, with Frank. Uh -huh. The other guys in the band, bless them, they're all great guys, they were all L.A. guys, so they went their way after every Who rehearsal. Who was in the band at that time? Uh, Terry Bozio, Patrick O'Hearn, Tommy Mars, Ed Mann, uh, Peter Wolf. Um, that might be yeah. it. And uh, so, you know, they would go home. I would go home with Frank. Because he, oh, yeah. he needed so, place to stay. Yeah, you know, on the weekends he would show me stuff. And then when we actually went on a tour on after three months of rehearsal, unbelievable re amount of rehearsal, I had learned five hours by then. Yeah. By rote. Yeah. And I just continued to hang out with him. It would be me, uh, him, his his bodyguard, John Smothers, and his, our road manager, uh, Phil Kaufman, who would go to breakfast together every morning or be seated on a plane together. So I got to be friends with him, you know? I would watch him write music on a plane. He's a funny, he bring out guy, these guy, right? He was so fun and so great to me. Yeah. But he did have this one thing. Yeah. To be in Frank's band, he demanded you just be super professional. You know, no drugs, no hangover so yeah. for the next day. None, none of that. You you play things consistently and correctly. That's what he preached. And I needed that. I huh. needed that kind of mentorship. So it was discipline. perfect for me. The now, discipline. after that, I went right into David Bowie's band. And it was completely the opposite. David, but, David, but you could do it. But yeah, but David said, I want you to go crazy on guitar, just go wild. That was for the Berlin records. And yeah, that, and that right. was sort of like Lodger, he was, yeah. he was, I love Lodger. I, I think, too. I think it's one of the, I, like, is that all you? Yeah. Like yeah. that, that thing is like, like I, it's, it's one of these records where I'm like, how do you not, how is that not the, the best, the favorite David Bowie record? Like I, I was tell you that how. the other. 
because RCA was dropping him on that record. It was the last of his deal with RCA, so they did not promote it at all. And that was was that the last of the Berlin record? That was the last of the Berlin. That was the last of the Berlin trilogy. Look back in anger. Oh, so many great things on there. We had a great time when we did it. That is my first actual recording experience. What I recorded with with Frank was all culled from live performances and Baby Snakes, the movie, all those songs yeah. on Shiki Booty. I yeah. never got to go in the studio with him, but I first, so the first thing I ever did in a studio was So that was, was all David. live? They culled it from yeah. live? No yeah. shit. So that's yeah, a lot he of work recorded for somebody. everything live, Frank did. Yeah. So my first actual time in a studio, Lake Geneva, Switzerland, Tony Visconti's the producer, along with Brian Eno and David Bowie. <laughs> oh my God. And it was... Uh, Pretty amazing. But Eno fascinates me. Yeah, he is fascinating. I mean, like, if you learn discipline and, 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 and doing your reps from Frank, what do you learn from that crew in uh, in Switzerland? How to do everything a different way, completely thinking out of the box. Not that Frank didn't think out of the box. Of course, he naturally did It was Frank's box. It was Frank's, yeah, it was his box. Yeah, it's a big so box. I'll, I'll but give you yeah. Yeah, a huge box, universal <laughs> of boxes. <laughs> Uh, but I'll give you an example. So this is okay. what happened. You know, we went there, and the studio that we were in used to be the place that burnt down. It uh, was a casino that burnt down. It was what they wrote Smoke on the Water about. Come on. Yeah, that's the studio. And guess who was playing there when Smoke on the Water, when it burnt down? Frank Zappa. How ironic, right? Oh, so, Frank Zappa yeah. in the mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's oh, yeah. it. The, you know, there's yeah. the, the that song. Yeah. So when they rebuilt it, they built it at, into a concrete bunker, literally, yeah. totally out of concrete. So the first floor had this, you know, f f fairly small control room. That's where David yeah. and uh, Brian and Tony would be. And then I would walk up these concrete stairs to the room above, and they had a one-way TV camera that yeah. could see me. Yeah. And so they could talk to me and look at but me. You couldn't see them? I couldn't see them. So here's Brian's big idea. Yeah. First of all, they told me, well, this record is going to be called um, Planned Accidents. <laughs> yeah. Planned Accidents. That's Brian so telling you we, that. We have 20 songs here, and we want you to just play what comes to your mind. So what we're going to do, we want you to go upstairs, put your headphones on, you'll hear the drummer count off one, two, three, four, and then start playing. No key, no nothing. I said, playing what? Can, you know, can I hear <laughs> yeah. the song first? Yeah. No, no, you yeah. can't hear the song. Yeah. Oh, can you tell me what key it's in? No, no. So, <laughs> Come on. So, really? Really. So all those songs, Red Sails, I'm a DJ, yeah. uh, Boys Keep Swinging, all those guitar romps that are in there, those were me playing initially whatever I could think of to play throughout a song I'd never heard before. But you're not hearing anything coming into your cans? No, I heard the song, oh, okay. but I had no idea. Okay. I mean, okay. it would go to, I wouldn't know the right. first thing about it. Okay. There's a chorus coming up, I wouldn't know. <laughs> so they'd let me do that maybe twice through. Yeah. And then I'd start maybe the third time and they'd say, wait, wait, wait. Sounds like you know where the chorus is. Forget it. We're done. No shit. You're done with that. Yeah. And then, so, and then what they would do is they would do a composite track of their favorite bits from that. And that's why those guitar things are so outrageous. But, you know, later I had to relearn them and play them myself anyway. But what, And there was do? another story connected with that. So one day I come down from the control room and yeah. I go in the, in the, uh, in the uh, record, you know, the studio. Yeah control room and mm. they um they're laughing together and i say what's so funny and they say well we got to tell you something you know 
we did this with Robert and we made sure we thought that these parts were impossible to play, but you, no one told you, you're so stupid you figured out how to play them. <laughs> Because I had just been playing all that stuff on tour with David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So whose idea was all that? That was Eno? Ah, that was Eno, yeah, I'm sure. But David probably agreed with it, too. And you toured with David? Then I toured with David for 78 and with 70, Pedro 79. Uh, Carlos. Carlos, I mean, yeah, Carlos. Carlos was the band leader. Almodovar, Al, Almavar, what's his last name? Okay. Carlos Alomar. Carlos, he Alomar. was the band leader, yeah. and he had been with David and played songs like Fame, you know, yeah, yeah. co wrote some yeah, stuff yeah. with him. He's a good player. Yeah, he's good, yeah. So that was, you know, who was in that band. And uh, then it was down to me to try to do all the stuff that was on those records. And it was a lot of fun. Now, the next time I did was 1990. David came back to me and said, I want you to be the music director of this much larger tour we're going to do. 108 shows. Which one was that one? 27 countries, Sound and Vision. Oh, yeah. And so you can bring your own band and I want you to figure out the arrangements and do all that stuff. So that was a whole new level for me of touring. You had to put together a band? Well, I had a band already that Your we guys. were touring at that time, what a trio. Yeah, okay. Uh, backing my record called um, Mr. Music Head. Bass, yeah, yeah. Just a keyboard player and a drummer. I would say just that. We didn't have a bass player either yeah. because the keyboard player would play keyboard bass. Sure. So, so all David wanted to do was uh, insert a bass player he liked from yeah. Switzerland and away we went we had a small little band playing uh, all of his 35 or 40 hits because wow. he advertised it as being the last time I'm ever going to play these songs live so we went around the world 27 countries and played everything and how we did it is we had samplers that the keyboard player would would trigger Yeah. so the orchestra would come in for you know space oddity and sure. we'd be you know, we'd sound like the record, but it would only be four of us. And on top of that, the show had big, huge opera scrims and videos and yeah. stuff. Very, very amazing show. And they put the rest of the band, the other guys, three guys in the band, behind an opera scrim in the back of the stage. Yeah. Huge 60 by 60 foot stage that yeah. they carried everywhere. Yeah. And only I was on stage with David. Wow. Just me and him. Wow. Which was scary as heck. Well, you do some stage uh, antics. I did then, yeah. <laughs> we even have a runway we had to go on, you know. So and it was fun. You go from there to uh, Crimson, or no? Uh, or the heads? Talking Heads next. Next up, folks, is Talking Heads. Yeah, they saw me at Madison Square Garden with David, and then uh, I came to a couple of their shows when they were out on tour and then finally they asked me to sit in and play Psycho Killer and then the next thing I know they asked me to play on Remain in Light. Yeah, see like that record is for a lot of heads of people the record. And in in terms of like that's their peak to some people. To me and too. It is. I, I just say, you know, for me it was. And yeah. and in a lot of it a lot of people I liked a lot of their stuff, but a lot of people attribute it to you. So when you say that's the peak for them in your eyes too, what makes you say that? Why? I just think it's a record unlike any other record. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not just the heads too. I mean, it's it's Brian Eno, and it's you know, it's a package of ideas and a new way to make records. Yeah. That no one had attempted yet at that point. Which and, was how. <laughs> layering everything okay well that's an eno thing yeah. right so you know you would 
I, I would say, let's say, I wasn't there for the it's whole thing. It's almost like looping with the pedal. It is. Okay. It's looping, and then what it is, is everything is on a track, and then if you want that loop to come up, you you turn that track on, then when you want it to go away, you turn it off. So you're continually building these different combinations of the loops that you have. Sure. And so everything, when I went there, there was nothing but the the, the uh, bass and drums and a few little of the guitar tracks. Yeah. Know, just a da 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 and so you know brian eno and david and uh jerry harrison were there in the control room and they say okay here's what we want you to do we want you to go out and in the control room i could see me big glass yeah between us uh put your headphones listen listen to this song this it's not going to change keys nothing yeah there's no vocals nothing yeah and kind of imagine where a solo would be and then play a guitar solo. Yeah. So that's what I did. I went out and I stood around <laughs> tapping my foot. Well, what a nice groovy track this yeah. is. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. Yeah. Wonderful. Then I launched into a, a guitar solo. And yeah. That, and that was the guitar solo for The Great Curve. And oh. so then I thought, well, they were all jumping up and down behind the glass. I could see them just going crazy. So I thought, well, that went pretty well. Let me wait around another couple minutes. I'll do a second one. <laughs> and that's how it worked. And that's how it worked. And you toured with that. I did, yeah. Yeah. I toured the world that with that. Was, and that was a big crew on stage. Yeah, well, the only way to do that record, because of the way they recorded it, which yeah. I just explained, yes. was to bring in a lot of extra people. Uh, I was one of them. They had a second bass player. They had a percussionist. They had right. a, a second keyboard player. But that wasn't the so it, it didn't end up being a ten piece band. But not the know. same. That wasn't Bernie Worrell. It was yeah, Bernie it was. Worrell. Okay, yeah. Bernie was in the band. He was a keyboard player. But you Bustin weren't in Jones. Stop Making Sense though. No, that gone. was this was before Stop Making Sense. But Bernie was on that too. Because and, what happened for me right yeah. after that is we, Chris and Tina and I went down to the Bahamas to try to make a record together, which became the, the Tom Tom, Tom, Tom yeah, Club. Yeah. And that's a that, good record. At that's yeah, it is great. Fun. Genius and love is yeah, still yeah. being re-recorded by people. Yeah, uh, the la last record called yeah. Lato that's out right now is Genius of Love being resampled yet again. I'm, that's I'll, nice. I'll be picking up a little check for that. Do you? Yeah, of course. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So okay, so you you and took then off. I joined Ken Crimson. Okay, but like uh, Catherine Wheel, you're on. Catherine Wheel, I did with David, and oh, I, I also I also I did two thing. of Jerry's solo records. So all in all, did, at which that time I did five records. You did Jerry first one, uh, Casual Gods. You were no, in the Casual yep, Gods, Red and Red and the Black. Uh, oh, that's crazy. Those man. five records, yeah. and then I jumped into King Crimson, did Discipline, and then did Lone Rhino. So within like a period, so of you just, you start you do Discipline, then you do your first solo record. Yeah, I was doing it at the same time, really. What was the, the shift into Crimson after they'd been established? Was it, Did you feel uh, some nerd pressure? Enormous pressure. <laughs> Unbelievable pressure. Well, you know, the funny thing was, you know, all my so life... So Discipline, what's that, their four, fourth record or fifth record? Oh, I think... I don't know how many records they had before. Probably six, maybe. Okay. It, but it was never an actual band that went from record to record, as right. you know. Robert right. well, was the I, only continuing figure from record to record. Okay, okay. So then they take a long break. I think they stopped in 73 or 4, come back in 1981, yeah. and, and then it's the new band, me, Tony Levin, Bill Bruford, and Bruford, Robert. right. And what happened right off the bat was Robert sort of gave me the keys and said, okay, you're going to be the front man, you're going to be the songwriter, you're going to write the melodies, you're going to write the lyrics, and you're going to be my guitar partner. All the things that I had been waiting for to have uh, all uh, my life so, were suddenly yeah. handed to me, but it was actually in a band called King Crimson. 
which was my second favorite band after the Beatles. So for me, it was huge pressure. So well, I didn't even know. Well, how do, how am I going to write a song with da 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 da? We rehearsed that stuff over and over hours a day. You and, and I was supposed to then turn it into songs, huh. which was kind of so. When so you okay? So you kind of broke it open with Bowie, and then you know you got into a different groove with the Heads, and Zappa gave you the discipline. So, but you were a Fripp fan from way back. Yes, I knew King Crimson very well. When I was in the the Holiday Inn band, we'd play five sets a night. Yeah. I would go back to my room, put on headphones, and put on King Crimson. Which record? All of them. Yeah. All of those records. Learning I, those I knew, riffs? I knew. I never learned any of them. I never even tried oh, to play them. you just like to listen to them? No, I, I didn't know how they were playing that stuff. I no? Mean, no, I didn't. I didn't understand odd time signatures or anything then yet. You know, I hadn't played with Dave, with Frank yet. Yeah. That's where I learned that. So I just loved the records, and I thought, wow, this is another level of music here. Yeah. And then one day I wake up, and I'm in that band, and, so, and they're saying, hey, you, you now it's time for you- To lead the band. To basically write the songs and, and anything- And you're that, singing them, too. And sing them, yeah. and play the, the dual guitar parts with Robert at the same time. And Plus, so, jumping around while you're at it in a pink suit. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how was your relationship with, uh, with Fripp? It was wonderful for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, because he always supported my ideas. I mean, he was very difficult to work with in certain ways. Things had to be his way, yeah. and that was not always, you know, absolutely great. But he gave me personally a lot of leeway yeah. because he says, you know, whatever you need. If you need this to change to another key, if you want to do something else in here, just take it, make it yours. So. Yeah. That's what I had to do. I mean, we started with frame by frame, and I, I right off the bat, I added some chord changes, moved it up a key, and so on, to be to to make it so that my melody would fit. Yeah. And then wrote the words, and then we went away. There we go. And now he was good started. with that. Yeah. He was, he... Absolutely wanted that. So when we get to something like Elephant Talk, I'm just fooling around one day in rehearsal and start playing dun, 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 on yeah. guitar, yeah. and we start kind of playing along with that. Tony's playing it, and pretty soon it's okay. Well, I think I can make that a song. That's how it was always wow. framed. Can you make this a song, or should this just be an instrumental? And you, you did like a million records with them. Yeah. Did a lot. I did 33 years worth of records with him. You, so, <laughs> and I wrote all the songs and lyrics for 33 years. That's fine. Every one of them, yeah. And do you, do you still, are you guys still friends? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, after um, Robert recently, uh, this is, I guess, 14 years ago, it's not recently, Yeah. Uh, decided to go a new way with a different band, I was hurt and, you know, I felt funny about it yeah uh, the way he did it was kind of a little cold uh which band was that that was the last one they had the uh the eight-piece band he started that eight-piece band okay but anyway i was also at the same time very very engaged in my solo career again yeah you we, did so many records we hadn't done anything for yeah. a while so i was you know i was and then eventually i did a movie with pixar and i invented something called flux an app that uh, plays music differently every time you hear it. So I was really engaged with a lot of things, and even if he had asked me to be in the band, I would have probably had to say, I can't do it right now at least. Right. So, you know, I got over it. I said, okay, so it's King Crimson without me. It's okay. I was there for a long time. You were there I loved for, what I, I would imagine. I loved what I did, did and what we did together, so I'm happy with it. Well, I mean, I imagine that in terms of, like, you know, Crimson Heads, like those, 
first three that you did, like Discipline, Beat, and Three of a Perfect Pair, I would imagine that for most of them, they're like, those are the records. Yes, that's what I always hear. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, a lot yeah. of people from a different age group of, of uh, in particular who didn't get the first round of King Crimson. The first thing they may have gotten was, you know, Elephant Talk or right. or something off a of beat or something. That is King Crimson to them. Yeah. Now, like the guys in Tool, for example, they tell me that. Oh, a yeah. A lot of people. Les yeah. Claypool told yeah. me that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, a lot of a lot of other players say, you know, that's Your crimson that's is it. the crimson. My crimson, if you want to call it mine. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can call it mine because it really, truly is Roberts, I suppose. No, I know, but he put you in charge. Well, he kind of gave me the keys and I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't lose them. <laughs> but what was it like when you had to learn all the old crimson that you never went to, that you, did you, like when you sat down with Robert? Well, we didn't at first want to do any of the old King Crimson. Robert refused to do uh, 21st Century yeah. or any of that yeah. stuff. But eventually we learned, I think, Lark's Tongue and Red, and that became part of our repertoire. Was there ever a moment years. where he like had he showed you something and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, or did you already kind of know it? By no. All, only thing that Robert and I worked on was the the really tricky interwoven uh, gamelan kind of guitar stuff. Oh, yeah. Now, that was his idea, so I had to learn how to do that with him. Yeah. And, that must uh, be pretty exciting. And then I had to learn how to figure out how to write songs with it. That was the real tricky bit for me. Yeah. But it must writing. have been fun to get in that, into that groove with him. I loved that we would sit, you know, for yeah. four hours a day. That's Always four nuts. hours. Yeah. Un- unplugged guitars, electric guitars. Yeah. And sit there and just go, da 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 It was like exercising or something, you know? Yeah. And then it would go, okay, now we're going to, let's change it this way. And it was fascinating. It was wonderful. It must have, it like, freaked me out for a while because I didn't know how it could possibly be made into songs, but I did it. <laughs> it must have been a, a, another huge kind of building block of your skill set. I mean, like definitely, to, definitely. I, mean, I think King Crimson. I, I look at it now as being, you know, really a, probably half of my legacy. Uh-huh. The other half being twenty-five solo records. Yeah. The other things in between playing with all the different people, of course, are in there too, but those are not your own makings. What's your favorite you know? solo record of yours? Like, where do you think you really kind of, just for my own knowledge, so I can go... You got to hear the last record, Elevator. Yeah. I feel like that's, I'm, I feel like I've gotten better and better, and that's where I really want people to you start landed? from. Yeah. If someone said, hey, you got 25, <laughs> where do I start? I'd yeah. say, start with this one. It's the last one, and I feel like it's, it's worthy Oh, great. Uh, there are other ones, you know. Uh, yeah. I would say it's something like Op Zop Tua, Inner Revolution, uh, Mr. Music Head. Yeah. And some people, this is what bugs me, some people say, yeah, I, I got your, you know, Lone Rhino record and your Twang Bar King <laughs> record, and I love your solo stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. like, well, it's you're a- only missing 23 then. It's a lot of music, folks. Dude, it's hard to keep up, man. You know, I I, <laughs> I do understand that. I know, I can't like, keep up with other people's records it, now at all. It's just it's a weird thing too. When and it must be weird for you, you you know, when you've been part of such you know, some amazing bands, you know, and uh, defining bands, and you defined the sound of some of those bands that people like don't associate you as a solo artist. Yeah. So of they you know early on you know when you do the beginning of Crimson. And then you do the first two solo records. The Crimson guys are like, "Oh, look, you did a thing." But then, like, eventually, they just keep moving forward with Crimson. They don't know what you're that you're out there. Yeah, they ch- can't, you're churning away. You can't really expect people to keep up with everything. I I can't do it myself. Long ago, I I actually stopped Mark trying to listen to much music of anyone else's because I felt like 
it dilutes what I'm doing, and I've got constant creativity going on in my brain. Honestly, yeah, I've got a studio in in my basement of my home, Where you bottom floor. Now? I've been living for 30 years in uh, on the northeast side of of Nashville in a place called Mount Juliet. Okay, and. The first thing we did was put in a studio, and yeah. it's the best thing I ever did. I bet, so of course, that's you how to. that's how I've had had the that's how I've been able to make so many records of my own, or with the Bears, or even sure. King Crimson records. We did two of those there. And what's your relationship with Reznor? How how did that come about? Well, my my relationship with Trent was always based on I think what I did in David Bowie. Okay. with David okay I think he was such a fan of David so one day I was in LA doing something else and I happened to have my gear and my manager called me from Cincinnati and said I just got a call from this band Nine Inch Nails I yeah. said yeah I've, I've heard about them I don't know anything about them and he said well they they want you to play on their record yeah and I said well I've got my gear here maybe I should he said I think you really should do this they they sell a lot of records and yeah. it's, but I didn't know their music so I ended up going and doing that first session for Downward Spiral based on that, and I, I loved it. I just loved the sounds they dude, were making. That Trent's, record. Dude. Trent's sounds and production was so great. And I was, I mean, at one point I was crawling around on the back of my gear, plugging things in differently just to find new ways of doing things for him. Because that's basically what he would do. He would always, on all four records I've done with him, he'd say, okay, I've got this. Now listen to it. Now, is there something you could think you could add to that? I go, yeah. I got five rec five things I I want to do. Okay, go. And I go in the you know I record them and I come back in and they're like, oh my god, that was great. Oh, that's fantastic. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll go away and three months later the record will come out and I won't recognize what the heck I played because <laughs> by then they've too many layers. They've, you know they've they've just done so much to it, but. Uh, so that's always been my experience. That with record's him. insane. Those two records, well, you were on four, but the fragile and downward mm -hmm. spiral, yeah. like, what? And all of those were done that way, where never was it planned. Here's what I want you to play. Well, thank God or you try to play this. Or and you were trained. Like that. he, that's yeah. that's the that's the Berlin system. Yeah, I always right? brought. Yeah, I always brought my my game with him. Like whatever. When Trent would call me and say, well, "I'm going to do a new record. Can you come out?" I'd say, okay, I got this new thing I'm doing, and I yeah, got yeah. this new trick, and I'm going to oh, do this. Oh, that's great, and I, man. I'd always make sure I gave him, I put those on his records. That's they great. They belong there. Yeah. <laughs> and you did this work. I mean, you've done a lot of bits, like, I guess, with Tony Levin. Why, he asked you to, why wouldn't you go play with Tony Levin? Oh, right? of course. He's yeah. the best. I yeah. love Tony. Yeah. He is the best. He's phenomenal. And, uh, and as a person, too, by but the like, way. But, like, what, what do you see as just jobs? You know, like, Paul Simon has young two albums. Was that just a job? Well, I love Paul Simon's work, sure, and I think he's fantastic, one of our best songwriters yeah. ever. But it was kind of that, because yeah. I was just thrown into it. I wasn't going to be in his band or anything else. Yeah. It was kind of that. And Paul is one of the very few people I ever worked with who was very, very specific with what he wanted me to play. Okay. So he would say, no, I want you to play this, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Here's the harmony. Da, da, da. You know, and yeah. and I'd say okay, but the thing he wanted from me, Laurie Anderson, who I'd also done th three records. Few records, with, right? You know, yeah, I, I love those records. Had talked to Paul and said, if you want to ever have a guitar player who's not a guitar player, you got to hire this guy, Adrian yeah. Blue. He does all these sounds. So I brought in 
my synth stuff, and yeah. I was doing guitar synth mostly yeah. on that record. Okay. Graceland. Oh. This is Graceland. Now I walk Hell in. Hell the record, first, man. Walk in on the first morning, and there's just um, Roy Haley, his engineer and producer for many years, yeah. just there, and me. And Roy said, "You want to hear some of the stuff?" And he puts on some stuff, and I thought, "Oh my God, Roy is getting a little senile or something. This is not." Paul Simon's records. It was all African stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, this yeah. isn't Paul Simon. Right. So then Paul arrives and I said, Paul, you know, I'm having a little trouble. Is, you know, and he goes, oh, well, here, let me show you. He, he like stands right next to me and yeah. starts. Put up, uh, put up the boy in the bubble song. Yeah. He put up that track, and he start. He said, "I've got some of the words." He starts singing some of the words in my ear. I'm getting yeah. chills down my back, right? Oh, yeah. And then I go, "Of course, that's Paul Simon. How how brilliant! You you've reinvented yourself, dude. Yeah. yeah. And it was so wonderful. On the so, back of the sound of the African continent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me the whole story about how he spent three years there, studied the music, knew what what it was all about, and then took well, it upon himself to make it his own. David Byrne did that too. Yeah. With Brazilian music, correct? Yeah, really? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't yeah. around for that, but uh, so anyway, when I worked with um, Paul, it yeah. really was him wanting sounds right. and me providing the sounds but so when you hear the the uh uh da 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 horn yeah. section that originally was my synthesizer guitar parts i had s written guitar parts that sounded like a baritone sax yeah. synthesizer yeah. a barit uh tenor alto and i played the whole horn section i think they added other horns later so this synthesized guitar business as it evolved out of your original you know jeff beck seeds yeah and then you sort of like kind of rest you, there's literally uh uh solos that you do where it sounds like you're wrestling with the fucking guitar well i usually am yeah <laughs> and and but you know there's a whole sort of uh a menu of sounds that you can now make well it's yeah it's my i call it my vocabulary yeah and it's a go-to thing so throughout my records especially my solo records i've threaded all these themes you yeah. know i okay i've got this sound and i want now i can use that here i go to it for as orchestration like yeah. like um you know like a composer might look at the orchestra and say okay i know what if i have these two yes, bassoons do right. it this yes. way i can get this sound right that's me you I've, have I, your, I've got that your vocabulary of sound yeah but the thing is i'm always trying to change it yeah and do you I do. I change it all the time because I I can't just go back and keep doing the same thing. That's my heart. I'm I'm a creative. Yeah. Force, so that, so that's exciting. Of, I, now of, I'm excited. Know, I can't to, stop doing that. Now I've got to get on it and get elevator as soon as you leave and, yeah. and well, get I, in. Yeah. I brought it. it for you. You did? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, great. I brought a CD of it. Oh, that's a, great. a couple of them. You can give them to. You can put them in your closet. No, no, I'll keep they, them. They, and they have my artwork, so you can see my artwork in your closet. My yeah. I, do you do you don't release on vinyl? Not yet, I'm because gonna be that idiot. it's too. Yeah, it's too. Right now, it's just taking forever, and I couldn't wait any longer. Oh, I sure. started making Elevator, but you can, during you can the get... COVID lockdown, and and it it was done two years before I could release it. Right. So I was saying, I'm not going to wait another year for vinyl. Sure. No, I want yeah, this I out it. now. I, yeah, I wrote but it. But you, I can get it on on Apple Music, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you can get it. All so over the Lori Anderson record, she must have been just sort of like, go for it. Absolutely, another yeah. one of those. I yeah. think after a little bit of time, I yeah. think people just came to me with that in mind. because yeah, they're like, people. you know, you you were a guy. Yeah, you they, brought in your yeah, bag you're, of tricks. You're, you're not asking me to come in and play rhythm sure, guitar sure. much. So wh how does William Shatner happen? That was through uh, his producer and 
player uh, Ben Folds. Yeah. Oh, okay. They were in Nashville doing yeah. his record. Yeah. Four in the afternoon, I get a call from Ben, and he says, we're doing a late night session tonight with uh, William Shatner, Henry Rollins, and me. Were you interested? I said, are you kidding? What do I have to do? We'll just bring your stuff over around 10 o'clock. Yeah. We went till five in the morning. And it was the best session, and those all of those guys yeah. were just going wild. At five in the morning, William and Henry were running around like little kids, oh, riffing off of each other. Oh, that's hilarious. And it was just amazing, man. I just had the best time. Oh, that's fun, man. So all I did was, you know, hey, can you make up this kind of thing? Sure, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to watch these guys run around. I loved it. So fun. So now playing with Jerry on these gigs, you're, yeah. uh, you're going to be here in LA at the Wiltern? Wiltern, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, wh- how much uh, prep did you have to do with uh, Jerry? It's just the two of you and a band. It's a full band. Oh, okay. Yeah, band. it's a 10 or 11 piece band. I mean, it used to be a band called Turquoise. Oh, yeah. Two yeah of Jerry the members, told me about it. Yeah, two yeah, of the yeah, members yeah. left, uh, and my bass player from my trio, yeah. Julie Slick, has now taken the place of the bass player. Uh, but yeah, we've got a three piece horn section, two backup girl oh, it's singers. A big deal. It's a big deal. We've got at least three or four keyboards. And you four, doing most of the singing? Like three or four guys who play. We play guitar. We. We share it because no one, we don't really want to appear to be, oh, I'm trying to be David Byrne. Right. So Jerry will do some, I'll do some. The baritone saxophone player, Josh, does some. But well, you do a couple of your, uh, a couple of uh, blue songs too, no? We only do uh, Thela Hunjinjit from King Crimson. I thought that was more appropriate for that band because okay. of the size, and yeah. I wanted to use the horn sections yeah. and the percussion and stuff. Yeah. It, it really fits that song well. We do a real cool version of it. It's more almost talking heads meets king crimson version oh, wow. really truly oh, but so. yeah i sing you know i think i sing out of 15 or 16 songs i think five I okay think. yeah and jerry seems great i had a great time with oh him. Gr- i love jerry great he's, guy. he's great jerry yeah. has really been helpful in my career a lot of times he's yeah. the one who really got me on remain in light and huh. really got me on the tour talking huh. heads tour and we've kept in touch over the years and seen each other a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, he, he he produced a record, for example, uh, God Shuffled His Feet, that, refer- that record, and uh, called me in to play on that song, you know. So we've we've bounced ideas Whose back Whose record and forth. was that? Crash Test Dummies. Oh, okay. Yeah, big record. And do you stay in touch with Eno? A little bit, but yeah. I don't really have that kind of relationship where I feel free to just call him with nothing. But I did talk to him a couple of years back Mm. and it was nice conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were trying to do something, a technical uh, streaming kind of service thing that fell apart before it even got started. See, he's another guy who I love and, but like at some point it's like, oh my God, he's done 19 records since the last record I bought. Yeah. I mean, what am I going to do? Yeah. You can't keep up with it. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, his his records are great. Oh yeah, another one I like is same got, like that is Andy Partridge with XCCs, another friend of mine. He's sure. just prolific as heck. Yeah, I'm he's prolific. another guy who's <laughs> mad at me for interviewing Todd Rundgren. But <laughs> well, I, Todd Rundgren, let's talk about Todd. <laughs> yeah, did you ever work with him? Yeah, I just did uh, uh, his new solo record. Me and I wrote a new song together. Co-wrote the song called Puzzle. When's and that it, coming out? Is it's it out? out. Oh, it is? It's it's out. Puzzle. You got to hear it. It's very good. Okay. So Todd called me one day and he said, I'm doing this record where I'm going to finish songs with other people. going to okay. co- co-write with people yep. by doing it that way. Yep. You have any unfinished songs? Yeah. said, I got, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. How many do you want? He said, yeah. well, send me four. I said, yeah. okay. okay. I sent him four. Yeah. 
he calls me back eventually and said, okay, I want to I want to work with this one here. Yeah. And I had already done the music and the verses of it, didn't even have a title yet. He said, I'm going to do the rest of the, I'll do the choruses and yeah. the rest, some more of the music and produce it. And he did, and I loved what he did with it. Because the original song was kind of down. It's, you know, people struggling and that kind of imagery. Yeah. And he said, you know, it's kind of a down thing, but I'm going to make it uplifting for you. Yeah. I said, good luck, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's exactly what he did. Oh, wow. So I was really so pleased with it. It's great. So it's on his new record. Oh, that's great. Yeah. All right, man. Well, it was great talking to you. You know, you're wonderful. I appreciate it, man. You too. <laughs> really are. Okay. And I've had a lot of people, fans and friends of mine, say they've listened to you for years. So oh, yeah. You're a very popular man. Well, thank you. And I, I was honored to talk to you. I was I was concerned about keeping up because, like, you know, I know there's some deep crimson people. And I, <laughs> and I always worry about the deep crimson people if I'm going to talk to you. But I think we did all right. I must have said a million words by now about Frank and King oh, Crimson and David. It was all great. It was all great. You know, we touched on everything. So Beautiful. that was great. Well, thanks, man. Well, thanks, Mark. Okay, there you go. Uh, Adrian and Jerry Harrison are performing songs from Talking Heads Remaining Light next week at the Wiltern Theater in L.A. Get tickets at thewiltern.net. You can get Adrian's albums at adrianbalud.net. There's a lot of them. Uh, dig in, man. You're, you're never going to hear somebody else that sounds like that. And what an influence he's had. And what an influence has been had on him. All right, look, you guys, hang out for a second. Okay, look, people, on Thursday, Sam Rockwell is back on the show. He was on back in uh, 2016, episode 695. You can go listen to that now for free. It's available in the free feed. Richard Linkletter was also on that episode. There was uh, actually a lot for me and Sam to talk about since the last time he was on. He won an Oscar. He was in American Buffalo on Broadway, which I saw. We made The Bad Guys together, a number one box office movie. So it was good reconnecting with, uh, with Sammy. This week, I'm in Boulder, Colorado at the Boulder Theater on Thursday, September 22nd, and Fort Collins, Colorado at the Lincoln Center on Friday, September 23rd. I'm in Toronto, Ontario at the Queen Elizabeth Theater on September 30th and October 1st. Then I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater on October 6th and Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center on October 7th. I'll be in London, England at the Bloomsbury Theater Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. And I'll be in Dublin, Ireland at Vicker Street Wednesday, October 26th. Then in November and December in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Long Beach, California, Eugene, Oregon, Bend, Oregon, Asheville, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. And my HBO special taping at Town Hall in New York City is on Thursday, December 8th. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. And before we go, friends, here is some familiar guitar.
monkey in the fonda. Cat ends everywhere.